This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. Welcome to the first episode of American Muslim Project. Um, a few months ago when I started researching people I could interview to bring on this podcast, I really wanted to have someone join the first episode that could kind of set the stage for us uh, about the American Muslim community. Um, that's why I'm really excited to have our, our first guest, Bashir Muhammad. Bashir is an expert on the views, demographic profile, and size of Muslim communities in America, something he's been studying for over a decade, most of which has been in his role as a senior researcher with the Pew Research Center. Pew is a nonpartisan research nonprofit that informs the public about the issues, attitudes, and trends shaping the world. They've conducted three wide-ranging surveys of the American Muslim community in the past 13 years, the most recent which took place in 2017. Bashir is here to talk about that survey and his journey to becoming an expert on American Muslims. Bashir, welcome to American Muslim Project. My first question to you is, can you just give us a sense of the size of the American Muslim community? Sure. Our estimates, I think, are that there are between three and a half and four million Muslims in the United States. Now, I know that number is lower than some folks tend to assume. I've certainly had lots of conversations, especially with Muslims. They're like, it's 8 million, it's 10 million, it's 12 million. Everybody around me is Muslim. But I think our, our data is probably one, one of the more rigorous methodologically. And I, it actually lines up with some other data that's been collected. For example, data by uh, Professor Ihsan Bagbi, who's done some work on mosques, specifically counting how many members are in the mosque and sort of extrapolating out from that. So I think there's a lot of good evidence for that three and a half to four million range. I also think there are good reasons why people tend to be skeptical of it, um, aside from the fact that they have in their head that it should be bigger. It's that Muslims tend to be concentrated in certain specific areas. They're not evenly spread out across the country. So three and a half to four million makes Muslims a bit more than 1% of the population, a bit more than one out of every hundred people. And a lot of folks, a lot of Muslims say rightly, well, well, I certainly more than one out of every hundred people I see are Muslim. And they're right, but that's because Muslims tend to be concentrated in certain areas, in certain urban areas. And so in those areas, there are Muslims are at much higher percentages. Um, but then there are other parts of the country where a whole town won't have any Muslims. And so when you're looking at a national average, you're on the one hand, you've got those towns of 5,000 people with zero Muslims. And on the other hand, you've got, you know, your Detroit, you've got your Dearborn, you've got your New York, you've got your New Jersey, D.C. And so what that balances out to, in our estimate, is a bit more than 1% of the population or between 3.5 and, and 4 million. Yeah. I want to dial down deeper into that 3.5 to 4 million. How diverse is the Muslim community within America? I mean, it's incredibly diverse. You know, no matter what way you define diversity, you're going to see that. 
it's diverse in terms of, I think a lot of people think racial and ethnic diversity. So when you first start talking about diversity and there's massive diversity there, there's no one racial or ethnic group that's the majority. You know, you have significant shares of South Asian, Arab, African-American or Black American, as well as African immigrants. You've got you know, Iranian immigrants. You've got such a diverse racial and ethnic uh, group. But there's also you know, incredible religious diversity. People think about, you know, Islam, hopefully folks in your podcast aren't like this, but a lot of people think about Islam almost like it's a race or an ethnicity. And so you wind up with this sort of race mindset, but it's a religion. And so the religious diversity is really important as well. There's Sunni, there's Shia, there are, there's a wide range of, of folks who identify as Muslim. Members of the Nation of Islam identify as Muslim. You know, Sufi, which can be Sunni or Shia, but isn't always. Um, so that there's a, a, a incredible diversity. And then there are folks who are not associated with any. Like none of those labels are applied for me. I'm just Muslim, right? That certainly is is common. And then there's different levels of religiosity. There are some people for whom you know being Muslim and praying five times a day and going to the mosque and all that is central to their lives. You know, they say that most or all of their friends are Muslim. You know, their family members are Muslim. They're in the mosque repeatedly in the week. And then there are other people who are like, yeah, I'm Muslim. I absolutely identify as Muslim. But that's not all or most of my identity. Religion's not that important to me. You asked the question of what is essential to being Muslim. And I really found this, this really fascinating in the survey that it wasn't just believing in God or loving the prophet. There were other things that were high on that list. And, and I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that. You know, we have this question about what's a, what when you think about your Muslim identity, what's essential to being Muslim to you? And we had a whole list of things and people could say that it's essential. Or they could say, well, it's not essential, but it's important. Or they could say that this isn't really an important aspect of what being Muslim means to me. And some of them, I think, are pretty obvious. You know, believing in God was at the top of the list. And, and I think most people would expect that believing in God is at the top of the list of what's essential to being Muslim. Although anecdotally, you know, when I've done qualitative work, I absolutely have encountered folks who are like, I consider myself Muslim. I'm not so sure I believe in God. I think there are theologians who would assert, well, then you're not really Muslim. But our definition at Pew, our overriding definition is sort of self-identification. So if people tell us they're Muslim, then we believe them. If they tell us they're Muslim, but they say, I eat pork, okay. If they tell us they're Muslim, but they don't pray, okay. If they tell us they're Muslim and they don't believe in God, we're like, okay. Um, there aren't many Muslims like that. Though. Most Muslims believe in God, essential to what's being Muslim. So next on that on that list, again, I think a lot of folks would expect this, was loving the Prophet Muhammad. This is a central tenet for most Muslims, even some of the groups that people often view as heterodox or as less normative, often still centralize the Prophet Muhammad as a key figure. And so, so it's not surprising that winds up being high. Another thing that, that's just about as high as loving the prophet is working for justice and equality in society. So here's when, when you start to get into things that, 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 that are more nuanced than just, you know, okay, well, praying is important and, you know, what else? So, so the idea for many Muslims, this idea of being active and sort of positive in society, um, moving the society toward justice, toward equality, is an important part of what being Muslim means. Not just it's important to be a good person, not as something that they look at as something I try to do, but when they think about being Muslim, this is central. Another thing, and here is one that I think is interesting because Muslims are a little bit different from Christians on this one in particular, is working to protect the environment. 
there are lots of, uh, you know, hadith about the environment and the importance of, of protecting the environment, conserving water, planting trees. Our prophet tells us a lot about these things. So, so I think people who are familiar with the faith aren't surprised, but I think that it was striking to a lot of folks that it was so high up there. I mean, it was as high as following the Quran and Sunnah, as like things that people think of as essential. Do you think this is because of the the demographics of the Muslim community that we're generally younger? Is that why we're seeing those two things really high on the list? I mean, I think the fact that they're that they're younger, you know, could be a piece of it. I honestly haven't looked closely at the age split there, but I will say that the numbers are a little too high for this to be just oh, that's what young people say, and older Muslims aren't really buying into that. There may be a gap there. I just have never really looked at it, but I think that there also is in the views of many Muslims young or old, an authentic part of the Islamic tradition and narrative that emphasizes both the environment and working toward justice. Can you talk to me a little bit about this idea of the Muslim identity? You mentioned a little bit like how it's important for people, regardless of what their actual beliefs are, that they self-identify as Muslim, even to the point where they might kind of exaggerate how often they go to the mosque or how often they fast. I find that really fascinating. So, um, so that's an interesting one. Broadly speaking, for a lot of folks, it's an important identity in various ways, and, and they don't want to be seen as, as sort of hiding it. They don't want to be, oh, but I'm not really Muslim. Don't let people know I'm Muslim. You know, there certainly are people that have that perspective, but there are others that are just like, this is who I am. This is important. This is in some ways an important part of my identity, and so I want to communicate that. Now, when Muslims are, and this, this is sort of a little in the weeds in, in survey methodology, which is that when people in general, when people are talking about things that they know they're supposed to do, quote unquote, I'm putting air quotes, they can't hear them on the radio, <laughs> the people are, are quote unquote supposed to do that are sure. normatively a part of, of some set of expectations, they often exaggerate a little bit. And a quintessential example of that across religious groups is attendance of religious services. You ask someone, how often do you go to the church or to the mosque or, or whatever it is? And you get a number, you know, I go once a week or once or twice a month or whatever it is. And then, and, and this is actually pretty dramatically clear in studies that have been done on Christians. You go and you look at the parking lots at the, at the churches and you're like, yeah, no, that's impossible. <laughs> there aren't enough cars in, in, in the churches for all these people who said they go every week to be there right now. And, and part of that has to do with the fact that people who see something as important want to say that they're engaged in it. Another part of it is about what that what a question like how often do you go to the mosque or the church is really measuring, which is it really picks up on what sort of person people think of themselves as. If I think going to the mosque every Friday for Jummah is important and I try to go, I'm going to say I go to the mosque for Jummah every week. Even if, well, last week I couldn't make it because I had a meeting and the week before I couldn't make it because, you know, my car broke down. And so I really haven't been in three weeks. But if you ask them, say, well, yeah, I go every week. Is that because they're trying to signal to other Muslims, to other Americans, to their parents? <laughs> you know, what, what is it? To themselves, I guess? I think that it's all of the above. I think part of it is just the types of questions that we ask on something like attendance and religious services really elicit a sort of an intuition, a sort of gut check more than a sort of let's stop and count. Mm. You know, it's not necessarily that they're sort of consciously, well, I need to inflate the description of how often I go to the mosque. 
It's I still think of myself as someone who goes to the mosque. Yeah. And so that's what, what people are often trying to com- communicate is this, well, I'm the type of person that goes to the mosque, but I'm not really that type of person. Um, rather than a sort of bean counting exercise of, well, well, what about on the 7th? What about on the 14th? What about on the 12th? And so that's just something that's worth being aware of as we look at this sort of data is that is that these questions really measure more sort of like, how do you, you think about these practices, how do you think of yourself in relation to these practices? I think another example of that is the fasting during Ramadan. Sure, of course. Um, in our survey, we found 80% of Muslims say that they fast during Ramadan. Higher rates than say that they attend religious services, higher rates than say that they pray five times a day, or even that they pray daily. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. One is that the fasting in Ramadan often is a very sort of public, communal exercise. And, and I, again, I've heard this anecdotally and seen this anecdotally where there are folks who like most of the time their Muslim identity sits fairly lightly. on them. But then Ramadan comes and they're not like pretending and they're not putting on an air, but Ramadan comes and they just sort of feel it in a different way. And so, so there's something about that engagement that I think is, is real. But I also think that part of it is that in these sort of narrow questions of do you do X or Y, there are folks who really want to communicate on that kind of person. So like, you know, I don't actually fast during Ramadan, for example. I don't actually fast during Ramadan because I have a medical condition and I really can't. But then I go and feed people as an expiation for that. Now, if I get a question about, did you fast during Ramadan? What am I going to say? Right. What's the right answer to say, right? Like, it's completely reasonable, I think. They're like, yeah, in this context, what I want to communicate to you is I'm that kind of person. So I think that's another thing to sort of, as we read these things, it's worth keeping in mind how people answer them. One question I had here was, so I think this idea of strict versus not strict, um, is there an attitude that my way of practicing is the right way of practicing for Muslims in America? The views on that are pretty divided. And, you know, I think, you know, one way that you can get at that is we did ask a question about whether traditional understandings of Islam need to be updated. And, and Muslims were divided on that question. But there were quite a few Muslims that felt like traditional understanding is all we need. We just you know follow the Quran, follow the Sunnah, do your thing. And that's what's expected. But then there are also a sizable number of Muslims, even some who said religion was very important in their lives, who said traditional understandings need to be updated in light of, of current events and current realities. So, so I think that there's a real divide there on that question. And I think, you know, when you get past the survey data, when you really sort of start to drill into it in a qualitative way, there's a wide range of what people mean by, you know, traditional understanding, what people mean by updating. And so, you know, there's a wide range of like what sorts of, of changes people are comfortable with and even whether or not people feel like that, you know, change is appropriate. I want to uh, dial a little deeper in in the demographics of the Muslim community that we started on a little bit earlier. And my question is immigrant versus native born. I would love to know a little bit more about that and, and even how they interact with one another. The Muslim population, the adult Muslim population in particular, is still a slight majority immigrants. Um, I say still. Going back for a few decades, that's been the case. If you go back further than that, uh, you know, go pre-65, and there there aren't very many Muslim immigrants at all, right? And then the law changes, and it becomes possible. And you very rapidly see significant numbers of Muslim immigrants, and you get to a point where they're the, the majority. And and according to our data, uh, it's now the case that a bit more than half of Muslims in the United States, 
that are adult are immigrants. And the, the remaining 40, 42, 45% of Muslims were born in this country. Now that, that group is, you could subdivide again between folks who are relatively recent descendants of immigrants, so like the children of immigrants, sure. a sort of second generation, and folks whose families have been in the country for many generations. Uh, largely, that's, that's an African-American community. I thought it was really interesting that 25% of Muslims have been here for many generations. That, that was new to me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, again, that's, that's largely in the African-American community, uh, you know, the African-American Muslim community. If you go back to the mid-20th century, was the larger group. And they've retained a sizable presence. I think the presence of this community has a long uh, history and continues to be significant and often is quite distinctive in a lot of ways, right? Whereas immigrants and even the children of immigrants are asked to question in various ways how they fit into the American tapestry, which isn't to say that they doubt that they belong, but that there's a question there that they need to, to speak to, right? Whereas if your family has been in this country for 150 years, for 200 years, for 400 years, that question ceases to make any sense. Yeah. You know, my, you know, if you're like, I'm the descendant of enslaved Africans, what do you mean? How do I fit? Like, <laughs> how do you fit? <laughs> Can you talk to me about, um, especially with, when it comes to black American, the black American Muslim population that they really, it's these two identities that, uh, I saw, read somewhere that they're two criminalized identities and, and how that's a particular challenge for them. One way to think about that is thinking about questions about experience with discrimination, right? And black Americans have experiences with discrimination. You know, we've explored this in a variety of different ways at the Pew Research Center, but, but they've had these experiences with discrimination because of their race. Sure. Um, and then Muslims have this experience with discrimination because of their religion. And so depending on the context, black American Muslims can 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 be hit with either of those. Right. So. So, you know, there's two different directions from which they, they need to wrestle with sort of acceptance or, or discrimination. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the election of Trump in 2016 and then. Uh, the election of Biden in 2020, and not, you might not have information on that, but how did the election of Trump in, in 2016 affect the American Muslim community? Well, the last time we collected data on Muslims was in relatively early 2017. So we're dealing with fairly early in the uh, Trump administration, after he had been sworn in, after he had begun um, engaging with some of his some of his more controversial pro uh, like the Muslim man. <laughs> but it, at that point, a couple of things, couple of things come to light. Uh, one is the share of Muslims who identified as Republican was the same as it had been 10 years earlier. Wow. So it was about 13% in 2017 that identified with or leaned toward the Republican Party. And I think that surprises a lot of folks. You know, people are like, what? One in 10 Muslims still consider themselves aligned with or closest to the Republican Party. But I think that there's, there's, sort of good, for lack of a better word, sort of fundamentals reasons for, for those things. I, I, I have for years said that Muslims in the United States are often a sort of cross-pressured community in that they tend to be fiscally fairly liberal and socially fairly conservative. 
Interesting. So there's there's sort of a tension there. Of course, in 2017, if we're talking about President Trump, the other factor that you want to add into that is whether you think the president himself or the president's party is supportive or friendly or, or, or unfriendly toward Muslims. You know, there's an argument that you might think, well, if you don't think that the party or the top of the ticket is friendly toward your group, then obviously you're not going to support them. But that's not always the case. So, for example, among Muslim Republicans, about half said that they think that President Trump is unfriendly toward Muslims. They still identify as Republican. Yeah. Among Muslim Republicans, about a third say that they think the Republican Party is unfriendly toward Muslims. Who identifies Republican? Like, I'm still Republican. I still lean in that direction. I still, where my center of gravity is. But they're unfriendly toward me. So we definitely see these folks who feel like I mean, the party's not friendly toward me. The other, I guess, one piece to it, I think, to, to help explain is that lots of folks felt both parties were unfriendly. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, so 34% of Muslim Republicans say the Republican Party's unfriendly. 23% of Muslim Republicans say the Democratic Party's unfriendly. And so if you feel like both parties are unfriendly, clearly you're not making a decision on the basis of that. Right. Or you're staying home, right? Like if you're, you're like, you can't lean toward either party in that case. So I think that's part of what's going on is there's this perception, at least among some circles, that like, yeah, they're unfriendly, but like those other guys, they don't really like us either. Yeah. I, I was wondering, I, I read some stuff online and, and I just don't know how true if, we, if you've done any research about the most recent election and that the Muslim vote, especially in Michigan or areas uh, around Detroit or Dearborn came out to vote and, and people are saying, you know, help push Biden to the White House. Any, do you have any information about that? Or In the data, two fairly stable things in the data that are relevant to that. One is, as, as I was alluding to, the Muslim communities for the last decade or so have pretty reliably been Democratic. You know, I mentioned, you know, the, the 13 percent that are Republican, two thirds uh, identify or lean Democratic. So, so there's definitely a, a much larger share that lean Democratic than the lean Republican. So to the extent that they're coming out and that we're continuing to see this pattern, you'd see this, that be the direction. The other piece is that Muslims, as I alluded to when we're talking about the population numbers, are not evenly distributed across the country. Yep. They tend to be concentrated in specific areas. And for our political system, that actually is a point of strength because the way these because the way votes are counted is they're counted in, in these sort of community areas, right? Sure. You know? Does Michigan flip or not matters a whole lot more, you know, even if by two percentage points matters a whole lot more than shifting the whole rest of the country by one percentage point. And so to the extent that Muslims are concentrated in certain areas in Michigan, in Florida, which they are, there's the potential for, for them to have a significant impact even greater than their one percent. And so, you know, where did that go? Is that why we heard? Biden during one of the debates men say inshallah. Might <laughs> <laughs> be. Yeah. Yeah. This is just all really fascinating information. I feel like we can spend hours talking about this research. I think the my one big takeaway from this is that you can't really talk about Muslims as as one group. If I were to have one takeaway, it would be that that Muslims are not a monolith. No matter what dimension you're looking at, if you're looking at them politically, religiously, ethnically, Muslims are not a monolith. And so, you know, talking about, you know, what do Muslims think, how do Muslims practice, what do Muslims believe, 
really misses the fact that there is all this rich nuance. It's like, well, which Muslims are we talking about? Um, and, and, and there are going to be differences. Uh, foreign policy issues may be near and dear to the hearts of, of certain immigrant Muslims. But as we talked about, there's a significant share of U.S.-born Black Muslims who, who may have a different set of priorities. And in both cases, see them as tied to their religious identity. They may see, you know, as we talked about, the fight for, for justice as a religious duty. And, and, and that might be the fight for justice in, Chicago, in the south side of Chicago. It might be the fight for justice uh, in Palestine. It might be the fight for justice in Kashmir. And which of those fights for justice is closest to your heart often is linked to, to the sort of racial and ethnic and historical questions. That's really interesting. Well, what does the future population of uh, the Muslim community look like in the next couple decades? Our data points to two patterns. I think one is that in the past we've seen um, growth in the Muslim community over the last you know, 10 or 15 years as we've been collecting data. We've seen a steady increase in the, in the share of the population that's Muslim. And I think there are two factors to that, one of which is relatively stable and the other of which is, is is, is largely subject to sort of political wings. Sure. The one that's stable is the age structure of, of the population. So it's a relatively young community that has a relatively large number of children. That points to continued growth. It's not the case that most Muslims are beyond the age of childbearing age, and a lot of Muslims are continuing to increase the size of the population of that in that way, or at least maintain in that way. The other is immigration. The Muslim community for a few decades now has grown significantly through immigration. You know, continued, like I said, it, a bit more than half of all adult Muslims in this country now are immigrants. And most of these people are not people that came in 1965 and are now age 90. These are people that have come in recent years and decades and continue to come. And so to the extent that that continues to happen, uh, you continue to see growth. Growth, so that would be more than that one, one point one percent, or whatever it is. Yeah, I think the, the the trajectory that we've seen over the last few years has been growth in percentage, growth in absolute numbers, absolutely, but also growth in percentage terms. You know, I think, and I'm going to get the number wrong now. You know, when <laughs> we first measured the population size in 2007, it was seven tenths of a percent, eight tenths of a percent. It was definitely less than 1% oh, by, interesting. By, by a few percent, tenths of a percent. And now it's more than 1% by a few tenths of a percent. Wow. So just da- da- digging deeper in that, post 9-11, we saw the percentage of Muslims increase. And and so, and then you did the, the survey again in 2011, did the, the percentage increase again? Yeah. The pattern, the pattern has been every time that we've looked at this, the percentage has gone up by a little bit. Um, and, you know, a, a tenth of a percentage point isn't very much unless you're starting at only, you know, a few tenths of a percentage point. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, so I think that, you know, we have definitely continued to see, we've seen continued growth as we've we measured this. You're listening to my conversation with Bashir Mohammed, senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. We'll be right back after a quick break. This is American Muslim Project. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. My guest today is Bashir Muhammad of the Pew Research Center. I asked him about his background and how he got started doing surveys about American Muslims. This has been a top so so understanding Muslim Americans has been a topic that's been of interest to me for for a couple decades, sort of as as a scholarly pursuit for a couple decades. And when I first started exploring this topic, you know, there really wasn't good quantitative data on this. There there were some ethnographies, some good ethnographies, some some archival research, also you know really good. Um, about various communities, some historical work, but there just wasn't the sort of quantitative research, you know, survey research or, or something along those lines on Muslim communities, you know, in existence. And so I started my, 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 my dissertation, my graduate work at the University of Chicago, eventually found my way into the PhD pro- sociology program with, with the intention of trying to, to address that. You know, hey, you know, what I want to do is I want to go and I want to get to get do these sort of studies of Muslims. I think that this would be really valuable to the public, to Muslim communities, et cetera. So I you know, took all these courses on survey methodology and questionnaire design. And, and then 2007 rolls around. I'm halfway through my dissertation and Pew releases this report. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, oh, somebody did it. <laughs> I, I guess I'll build on that. Nice, nice. Yeah. Because as a graduate student, I sure as heck wasn't going to have the kind of money it would take to replicate a nationally representative study of, of over a thousand Muslims. And so my dissertation shifted from let's collect, let's build our own survey to let's analyze Pew's survey and understand, you know, what are its strengths, what are its weaknesses, what did it do well, what are the questions that it's really not working on. And I did that sort of quantitatively. I also did that by doing in-depth interviews with people or cognitive interviews with people where I'd ask people the sorts of questions that were on the survey. And they say, well, what are you thinking about when you answer that question? You know, what, what, is, what do you mean when you say this or that? And, you know, I'm presenting my work. Fast forward, I'm, I'm about to graduate. I'm presenting my work. And after my presentation, someone from Pew comes up and says, hey, this was a really interesting presentation. And, you know, you know it's now 2010, I think. We're doing another version. We're doing that study again, and we'd love to have you come out and talk to us. And that just sort of floored me. First of all, because it's sort of, I'm a little starstruck, right? Like, oh, wait, like, I was, I'm like, whoa. Um, but then, you know, beyond that, I'm just really impressed that Pew is open to criticism. Because frankly, my presentation wasn't look at how the 2007 survey got everything right. Yeah. That wouldn't be an interesting dissertation, right? Like, yeah. What were some uh, of the things that they got wrong that, that you can so, recall? So, so one thing I, I remember um, was they had this question, and I don't remember exactly how it was worded now, but they asked Muslims basically to choose between their Muslim identity and their American identity, like which one's more important, or like, do you feel more this or that, something along those lines. And the question just didn't work, right? Like, you could see that quantitatively and that they had a hard, large number of, of, not, of people who didn't answer the question. Um, and you could see that in the cognitive interviews because you got this pushback of like, no, the answer to which one is no, because both. Which you now have corrected and information exactly. came out. Yeah, exactly. 
And so, and so, and so this is what I mean. Like, you know, I'm, I'm like, Hey, I did all this work. And I think that this is a way that we can improve. And Pew's like, yes, we'll do that next time. And I'm like, this is a great place. That's great. You know, they, they don't always get everything right. There's no, you know, it's, it's, it's research, you know, you move forward, but, but they're open to improvement. And, you know, I've been now been with Pew almost 10 years and I've, I've definitely continued to feel and try to embody that, that attitude, that sort of humility of, you know, we did the best research that we could do. But if there's room for improvement, we want to improve. That's amazing. I, I, I'm really interested in in how do you create the survey? What are the, what are what what is that process like? How long does it take? And you know, are you on the phone every day talking to ten different Muslims? Or like, you know, I I just want to understand that. Pro- what is your day to day like? I do not really. Nobody at Pew is on the phone talking to our respondents. We outsource that. Um, we design this questionnaire. We design. We, we figure out the best way to ask the questions. Um, and then we hire a polling firm that has call centers um, or now, you know, increasingly we're moving away from telephone and moving to mail or, or, or web-based. We hire a firm that, that specializes in that sort of nitty gritty of like, what are the best times of day to call people? How many times do you call people to get the most responses? How do you address a letter to make it the most likely people will open it. How big an envelope should it be? Like, like these super nitty gritty details. There are people that have experts in these things and they don't work at Pew. And so we outsource that. And it's also very sort of labor intensive, just mailing out 50,000 letters. I can't even imagine, you know, or calling a hundred thousand phone numbers. That's very labor intensive. And so, you know, we outsource all of that to to polling firms that that have the expertise. So my day to day is really, on, on the two ends of that, on the, in the on the front end, it's designing the questionnaire. What are the right questions to ask? What are the right ways to ask the questions that are not going to offend people? That are going to get at the data? That are going to encourage them to be honest? What what? Sometimes the order of the questions matter. Well, if we ask, I'll give you a perfect example: asking people their religious identity. You know, if you call people up and you just say, "Hey, are you Muslim?" They're not going to answer. You're not going to get very yeah. good data. And so we put a lot of thought into how do we encourage people to tell us about their religious identity. And one of the aspects of that is it's not the first question you ask. Because once people start talking to you for a few minutes, they're more comfortable. Um, the other is you, you don't single folks out. You don't say, are you Muslim? Um, you say, you know, what's your religion? And you have a list of five or six or seven or eight things. And Muslim's one of them. And so people don't feel singled out. And, and so there's things like that that you do to get the best quality data you can. Um, so that's, so on the one hand, I do a lot of that. Yeah. And then once we get the data back, you know, I write a report, you know, I, I analyze the data and figure out what are the patterns we're seeing? You know, is there a difference between ages by, or by genders or by races or ethnicities? How do we break up these races or ethnicities? And then we, we write these reports that we put on the website. Sometimes we also do sort of videos and interactive, but it's all this sort of like, how do we get that data out there? So those are kind of the two pieces of, of what I do. What are the other difficulties that you have encountered in surveying Muslims? You mentioned just getting them to identify themselves as Muslims. Are there, are there other issues that come up? Um, the other big one is language. Uh, and I mentioned there's a largely immigrant population. And so there's always been a concern at Pew that, well, if you just do the survey in English, are you capturing everybody? And just as importantly, perhaps more importantly for, for survey work, are the people you're not capturing different? And the way that we've traditionally addressed this specifically with Muslims is 
we've been able to do the survey in multiple languages. Oh, that's great. So all three of our surveys were done not just in, in English, but also in Arabic, also in Urdu, also in, in Farsi, because those were the, the, the sort of largest groups. And ideally, we'd have more, right? You know, we'd have Somali. and we have, But, you know, at some point, you've got you've to sort of accept the limitations For of sure. what we could do. Yeah. Um, but we do, to the extent that we can, try to be inclusive. And so, you know, for all of our studies, we did it in these four languages rather than just, well, we did it in English or we did it in English and Spanish. Like most of our studies are done in English and Spanish because those two cover most people. But for Muslims, we felt like that wasn't going to cut it. And so we've, we've always done it in these other languages, but that's a lot more complicated, right? You know, this, this exercise in translating and back translating and just, does this word mean this in this language? Well, what about in that language? It's a different additional layer of complexity, but I think it's, it's, uh, well worth the effort. Yeah. Why is this information important? Why 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 do you collect this, and what what do you hope that people use this for? Whether it's people like me or others in, in government, why 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 do this? In general, at Pew, you know, we take the attitude with all of our work, which you know we do a lot of you know public opinion polling on different topics and different groups. We take the attitude that having more information is better if it's good information. You know, people will agree or disagree on various policy issues um, about the direction that they want for their communities or, you know, whatever the topic is. But whatever that is, whatever the, the debate is, whatever your goals are, knowing where the communities are, where the public is now, is a valuable stepping stone. You know, bringing it back specifically to Muslims, uh, you know, you might be a mosque leader trying to think about, you know, how do we keep young Muslims engaged in, in the mosque? Uh, and I think that there's something in their report that can speak to that about what sorts of things younger Muslims value. What do they see as essential to Islam? You might also be someone who, you know, feels like isn't Muslim at all and feels like I'm skeptical of Muslims. I'm not sure that I, you know, I trust them. I don't know that they belong in this country. I don't, I feel like maybe they're a burden. And we can speak to those questions, too, like, you know, economically, where do Muslims fit? Um, and here, just sort of as, as an aside, it's interesting because Muslim immigrants are actually more wealthy and more well-educated, sort of higher socioeconomic status than other Muslims and then the public as a whole. So it's a very educated, very, you know, sort of successful in a position to sort of give back to the community's uh, population. Uh, you know, another thing our data tells us is that lots of people don't personally know anyone who's Muslim. Interesting. A lot, uh, lots of Americans don't know. Lots of Americans writ large don't know anyone, who, a single person who's Muslim personally. And so they have questions about, well, what, what is this Islam thing? Like, what do these Muslims believe? You know, you know, I see in the, on TV, I see this stuff about terrorism and ISIS and like, you know, do, do Muslims support ISIS? Do Muslims in the U.S. support ISIS? Um, and Frankly, I think a lot of Muslims look at those things and be like, I'm offended that you asked that question. And I get that, right? As a Muslim, I get that. Yeah. Um, but that's where a lot of folks are, right? Um, and I think we can acknowledge that that's where a lot of folks are. And so our data can answer those questions too. You know, sure. we, we give Muslims a chance to, in their own words, in their own language, react to these stereotypes. And I think that's also really valuable. You're giving Muslims this sort of surfacing Muslim voices um, in, a, in a representative way, in a way that doesn't distort the community, that lets them speak to, to some of these things that 
that, that people are wondering and maybe afraid to ask or wondering but hearing you know bad anecdotal data or inferring from you know foreign policy debates yeah no doubt well thank you so much for your time i really appreciate you joining today if people want to read the report how can they find it the website, uh, pewresearch.org, uh, the, if you type in survey of Muslims, all one word, you'll get to, to the, the full report, our 2017 survey. I, I'm also on Twitter, uh, bmoham, B-M-O-H-N. I'm also, I'm always happy to sort of engage in conversations about this kind of topic. That's great. I really appreciate you joining American Muslim Project and uh, have a great day. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. The show today was produced, researched, and edited by Mark Inato, Lindsay Gamble, and me, Asad Butt. The music was by Simon Hutchinson. You can learn more or give us feedback at AmericanMuslimProject.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.